Welcome to a special edition of the best podcast available. I'm Jason Gibbs alongside Andrew Gribble. It is a special week here in Berea as the Browns salute one of their own radio analyst and former great on the gridiron, Doug Deacon. Gribbs, uh, 50 years. That's longer than you and I have both been alive. That's how long Doug Deacon has been affiliated with the Cleveland Browns. You and I have had plenty of experiences with Doug in our nine plus years of doing this. Uh, just an unbelievable person on the field, off the field, and a wonderful guy to get to know. And just talk a little bit about your experiences. And it's a it's an emotional week, I think, for all of us as Doug gets ready to wrap up uh, a legendary career here with the Browns. Yeah, I mean, you, you you threw it out there with the numbers. I mean, 50 of 75 years, essentially. So that's two-thirds, if I do my math correctly there, with where Doug Deacon has been a part of the Browns. And I think it was Tony Grossi who pointed this out, but just think of all the games he has been to. Like, he has been to all of almost all of those games because he started every game uh, and he had the, the consecutive game streak and he's only missed two games while being in the booth. So he has been home road for all of these games since 1971 when the Browns drafted him. Uh, and then for all of us that get to work with Doug and really more importantly, talk with him on the practice fields during, during training camp and, and things like that, since he's always around here, uh, just a, a remarkable guy, uh, a guy that can needle everyone. And I think that's a good thing. That's the best quality of Doug. If you're being needled by Doug, that means he, he likes you and, and, and is welcomed you into his uh, kind of his inner circle. But, it's a very large inner circle because I don't know if anyone has more friends than Doug Deacon. And so it's just uh, an incredible guy that I remember growing up watching the morning exchange in the early nineties when he was made his regular appearances there. And then for me in my childhood, this is a, not a, a darker chapter in Brown's history, but there was a lot of Brown's games that didn't get put on TV. Uh, they were blacked out. And so you'd have to listen to the radio to hear the games, especially in the nineties. In the so I grew up on that. And then you just, uh, it becomes a, a, the background voice and, and anytime you're driving uh, or just hanging outside and listening in your garage, Doug Deacon's always been there. So as Jim said, it's going to be uh, hard to imagine a radio broadcast without Doug moving forward, but just an incredible achievement uh, to, to register 50 years at the franchise. It, it really is. 1980 Pro Bowler, uh, in 1982, winner of the Byron Wizard White NFL Man of the Year Award. He was the inaugural winner of the Cleveland Touchdown Club Humanitarian Award that was soon renamed for Doug. 92 Greater Cleveland Sports Hall of Fame inductee, 2003 Ohio Broadcaster Hall of Fame inductee, 2012 Greater Cleveland Sports Commission Lifetime Achievement Award, and plenty of other accolades as well. And it, Gribbs, you said it, you know, if, if he was messing with you, he, he liked you. And it was also the case on the road where you could find Doug at the hotel uh, bar, taking care of people, uh, picking up tabs for Browns fans when we were on the road, picking up our tab and drinking uh, plenty of libations, telling stories. And it was always great to be uh, traveling with Doug Deacon and be around him, especially in the hotel. Yeah. And I think when you think about it, the, this is a franchise that's undergone a lot of transition over the years, but 
Doug has kind of been the one stable part of it. And throughout it, whether it was as a player or a, a, a broadcaster or, or that kind of murky in between where he was working for the Cleveland Browns Trust, he's been a, 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 an incredible representative of the franchise. And I, I think as many people have alluded, you know, this is Doug stepping away from the booth, but I, I don't think we've seen the last of, of Doug or, or around here at the Cross Country Mortgage Campus. No question about it. He has made his home here since 1971. He was born in Streeter, Illinois, went to the University of Illinois. Coming up uh, today on this podcast, Gribble and I are going to get out of the way because at the end of the day, it's about Jim Donovan, Doug Deacon. For the last 23 years, the two have teamed up to bring you every game on the University Hospital's Cleveland Browns Radio Network. 23 years, a lifetime of stories. We hope you enjoy this special edition of the best podcast available. Hi, everybody. Jim Donovan, alongside with my broadcast partner on the Browns Radio Network, Doug Deacon. I have said that thousands and thousands of times, but time is growing short now. Doug is announcing that he is stepping away from the Browns Radio broadcast booth and the analyst position on the Browns Radio Network. And uh, so we're here to talk about an amazing career. So as I said, Doug, I've said that thousands of times, and and I'm just finding out about this. What the heck's going on? You're leaving? <laughs> it's time to get get on or get out. All right. So um, here we are, 23 years, you and I together. But let's do the math. Tell me, let's go through all the years. How many years as a player with the Browns? 14. 14 years on the field with the Browns and in the broadcast booth. Uh, well, ever since uh, from 85 on, uh, I, I think it's we're probably at about uh, 30 some. Wow. Man, yeah. That's amazing. Boy, that's half a lifetime. <laughs> I got to get a computer to figure that stuff out. <laughs> so let's begin, because the precious part is coming to the Browns as a player. You came out of the powerhouse out of the Big Ten, the University of Illinois to come to the Cleveland Browns. And the story is amazing because you thought you were going to be a tight end coming to the Browns. Uh, and suddenly you became a, a tackle. Take us down the road of Doug Deacon arriving in Cleveland to become a, pl a player and a part of the Cleveland Browns. Well, it's a little bit different than it is today. Uh, I got a phone call at home. Back then they didn't have the draft on TV. And uh, I get this phone call. It's Nick Scorridge, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns. We just drafted you in the sixth round. And, okay, great, great, great. Then I heard the word as an offensive tackle. And I said, hey, any chance I can play tight end? And he said, well, we'll see when you get here. Well, when I got there for a mini camp or rookie camp, they gave me a 73 number. So I knew that was kind of the end of it. But uh, so they brought me in and uh, they prior to, uh, you know, after they had drafted me and they, I had a meeting downtown with the owner, Art Modell and some of the people and got done and uh art has this uh, guy that was his kind of gopher bernie harrison he says hey can you take deacon to the airport so i said he, he said yeah i can do it so he takes me down to the higby building says there's a rapid transit going west when it ends get off so that was my uh, welcome to the nfl in cleveland it's a little different than all these courtesy cars that, that pick up oh, yeah, players right? now isn't it yeah well the ironic thing is prior to playing in an nfl game i only saw one live yeah. And uh, somebody had given me tickets in 1970 to go up to uh, see the Bears play a team called the Cleveland Browns. And uh, 
that was the only uh, NFL game I ever saw live before I played in one. Now, let me ask you this. When you went to that game, was that game at Wrigley Field? Yep, at Wrigley Field. How about that? So Doug saw the Browns play at Wrigley Field. Not the Cubs, everybody. He saw the Browns play at Wrigley Field. When you walked into the Browns, what was the state of the Browns at that at that point? I mean, there were still a lot of great players that may be coming near the end of their career there. Yeah, we were playing on fumes from the 64 championship team. Uh, you know, I had a chance to play next to Gene Hickerson, the Hall of Famer, for three years. You know, an unbelievable player. Uh, obviously Leroy Kelly was still there. Bill Nelson was the quarterback. They drafted uh, Mike Phipps third overall, but he hadn't been able to beat out uh, uh, Bill Nelson. And so it was, uh, you know, it's kind of a transition from that 64 championship team, you know, on the defensive side, they had Walter Johnson, Jerry Shirk, Joe Jones, Jack Gregory, uh, the linebacker was Jim Houston, Dale Lindsay, John Garlington. And then the defensive backfield, it was Ernie Kellerman and, Walt Sumner, Clarence Scott, and Ben Davis. Doug, tell me this. Um, you were always so devoted and passionate to the path of getting Gene Hickerson into the Hall of Fame. You just mentioned that he was here and you were proud to be a part of an offensive line and around him. Um, and it, it took a long time. And I know you've mentioned this to me and to others. It took too long to get him into the Hall of Fame. But I mean, that was really quite a guy and just a phenomenal player that maybe slipped through the cracks in the process of getting a guy into the Hall of Fame. And so finally he got there. Well, he finally got there. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's a promotional part about getting players in the NFL. And uh, because of some feelings within the organization and Gene, I don't think he was, you know, promoted uh, in regards to trying to get him in. And, you know, unfortunately, by the time he did get in, he had Alzheimer's and, you know, it just wasn't the same event that you had hoped it to be. And uh, I, I remember being down in Canton for the induction and going in and seeing Gene in the locker room after they had introduced him. And it, it was it was a tough thing. Yeah, it really was um, an incredible moment. Doug, was it a lot of fun? I mean, when you tell me the stories about playing for the Browns back in those days, um, it just seemed like it was a lot of fun because the fans were so close to you and, and, you know, guys weren't making $500 million. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they weren't. Uh, and I assume you were not either. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it was, you know, back then the, the one thing that, you know, is really different from today is you only had 43 guys on the team. So, you know, uh, when you got hurt, you better been real hurt if you weren't going to play. And, uh, you found that out. Uh, you know, you always hear the coaches talk about dependability and accountability. And uh, when you only have 43 guys, uh, sometimes you have to play hurt. And, you know, later on, it catches up with you. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't do it any other way. Your best shot, do you think, to go all the way and the Browns go to the Super Bowl when you were a player, you probably had to think that not only was the team great of the cardiac kids in 1980, but things were going your way that year. I mean, there were some pretty magical come from behind victories. You had a quarterback that just had an amazing touch in Brian Sype. You had, you were pulling out games in the last second with these Herculean comebacks um, and you're at home in the opening round of the playoffs. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it was one of those seasons where you, like you said, you know, the close games we won and we've seen, you know, Brown's teams do that before. But, uh, you know, we got to the uh, playoffs. We, the Raiders came out here. 
it was probably one of the worst days weather-wise in the history of the NFL. And, uh, you know, it wasn't so bad on the players as it was on the poor people sitting in the stands because their right. feet were, were on, you know, cement. And I'm sure the uh, coldness just went right up. And if you're a player and you're moving around, uh, it wasn't that bad. And, you know, as an offensive tackle, anytime you get uh, conditions like that, the other guy slows down. So everybody comes down to your speed. Tell me about the hysteria, though, um, when you were a Browns player on that particular team in that year. You had these amazing, you know, come from behind victories, but also these welcome homes when you'd win on the road and the airport would just be stuffed with fans. I mean, it was like when the Beatles landed in New York, when they finally came over for the Ed Sullivan show, it was really unbelievable, wasn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, and uh, you know, when we clinched the division down in Cincinnati in the last game, uh, you know, we, we got to the airport and uh, the mayor was there to greet us, George Voinovich and everything. And uh, you know, it was, everything was cardiac kids. And, you know, Brian Sype was league MVP, did an unbelievable job. Uh, you know, it was one of those seasons where the ball bounced your way. And uh, we were very fortunate to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah. What was the suddenness like of losing that playoff game? Uh, that was uh, like, you know, playing your stereo full blast and all of a sudden somebody pulls the cord. Uh, yeah. the, the stadium got so quiet, you know, uh, it was, you know, we were going down the drive to, uh, you know, get the winning score and uh, we get intercepted uh, by a guy that, you know, according to some people that played for the Raiders, probably couldn't catch, uh, you know, 10 balls in a row, let alone that one. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was, you know, a lot of energy. And then all of a sudden it was just like totally quiet. And, and you know, I remember going home after the game and I just didn't want to go out. And uh, my brother was in town and he said, ah, come on, let's go out and uh, and it was, it was just amazing the way that people received the, the team and, you know, how much appreciative they were of the players on it. Yeah. Was it something that, um, you know, it just seemed that the players just so enjoyed being with the fans too. I mean, you all had like Monday night deals when there was mo when Monday night football was red hot, and the, a Browns player would be appearing at a holiday in near you and, the place would be jammed. I mean, it would be jammed on a Monday night. It didn't matter whether you were Brian Seip or if you were the holder on, on, on the point after. I mean, it was just it was just an electric, wasn't it? Yes, it was. In fact, you know, I hosted one of those for about six or seven years. And I'd always, you know, get one of the guys to come over and, you know, the place would be packed. It would be jammed. And, uh, uh, you, you know, and it was a good group of guys. It, you know, we played as a team. I mean, I go back to my uh, first year. We made the playoffs uh, in 1971. We played the Colts. They went on the, and won the championship. The next year, we played the Dolphins uh, in their undefeated season. And uh, we actually had them down a little bit at the beginning of the game. And then Mike Phipps threw five interceptions. So mm. that didn't end well. But, uh, you know, then you, you go uh, maybe eight years before you get a chance to get back in the playoffs. Yeah. When we've been on the road so many times all around the NFL, I mean, a lot of alumni, guys that you played with, will come in and visit the team hotel back when you could visit the team hotel and, you know, have dinner with you and things like that. Who are some of your favorite teammates? I know Dino Hall never missed an opportunity to when we were in the area, no matter where we were in the area, Dino Hall would make sure that he dialed you up and get dinner and a great guy. But I know there have to be a lot of teammates that really are high on your list. Well, yeah, Dino, obviously, Brian Seip, Jerry Shirk, uh, Dave Pizzulli is still here. 
you know, Dave Logan, you know, out in Denver, Dave, you know, is doing the broadcasting out there. Uh, you know, the guys on the offensive line, Henry Shepard, un unfortunately, the late Tom DeLeon, Cody Risen was another one that was just, he was like my son, uh, you know, and he, he was a guy that was, you know, was going to quit the team one year and uh, his dad had passed away. And, you know, so we had a talk and, you know, Cody stuck around and he, he went on to have a very productive career. Uh, Clarence Scott came in, in with me. Clarence was probably the, one of the classiest guys I've ever seen. Then you had Greg Pruitt, who was just, a, you know, a lot of fun to be around. And it was, you know, I go back to even the original guys, Dale Lindsay, who uh, is a coach at San Diego University. Uh, he, was, he coached with the Packers. He coached with the Browns. Dale and I are, you know, still close. Uh, you know, and then there's some, some guys that were, you know, friends that have, you know, unfortunately passed on. And, you, and you, there were so many pranksters and you might have worn the C on your jersey for that as a captain of the pranksters uh, but there were just so many there was a lot of hijinks that went on uh, during the season during training camp wherever you guys were getting set for the upcoming season it seemed like a really close bunch yeah it was and you know the thing is we all had fun together uh, when you were at training camp you know you had the two a days but after that second practice you know you'd head out to get some uh uh, re replenish your fluids and uh, it was you know it was always you know it was always a, a good time uh, when, when I started we trained in Hiram Hiram was a dry town so after practice it was like U.S. 30 drag strip to either get to the Riverside Inn or to go to Garrettsville and uh, the thing I learned you know back then it used to make you sing if you came in late you couldn't you didn't have to sing because nobody was left <laughs> tell me this why was it so important or what was in the decision to stay in Cleveland? You stayed here. Um, your playing days would come to an end and you were going to live here and, and you still live here. And other players have done that, which um, and maybe, you know, the players of today don't do that so much uh, because they have homes everywhere. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that a guy like you decided, hey, listen, I liked it so much here. I'm going to stay here. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, my first year I went after my rookie year, I went back to Illinois and got my degree. I needed six hours. So then uh, my second year, I had a knee operation. I, I went back home in, in Illinois and I was a substitute teacher in the off season. Uh, then my third year, uh, I had another knee operation on the other knee. And I said, you know what, I think I'm just going to stay around Cleveland because, you know, the medical uh, facilities were much better and I could rehab here. I mean, some of the ways they used to rehab you in the old days, uh, I think you'd get arrested for today. <laughs> uh, tell me this. Uh, was it a tough decision to retire as a player? Yeah. Uh, you know, I always felt that you, you never said you were going to retire because if you said you were going to, you'd play like you were going to. Right. And I, I was always leery of, I didn't want to be that guy that was just getting that last check. I wanted to be that guy that earned that last check. You know, when I came to town, I was only here a short period of time, and we were hustled out to Berea, to that tiny little locker room right on the campus of Baldwin Wallace, and you were announcing your retirement, and uh, you, were, you were leaving, and uh, you were not going to play. Um, but, lo and behold, you didn't miss a beat because you were going to go right into the radio booth. How did that all come about? You know, it, it's... A lot of sports, you know, is, is about talent. Another thing is it's about timing. And, uh, you know, it's like when I got drafted here as an offensive tackle and never played, 
uh, Dick Shamfraff was in his 13th year. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, as a young guy, he looked pretty quick, pretty fresh and pretty raw. But it just gave me an opportunity to play. And uh, much like in the radio booth, when I retired, uh, Gib Shanley had decided that he wanted to go to uh, uh, Los Angeles to get a job out there. So there was an opening in it. And so, you know, I applied for that. And um, it you know turned out, uh, you know, what, 30 some years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. There you go. Wasn't Joe Tate a factor too, Doug? Didn't he talk to you about possibly getting into broadcasting and told you, you know, you might be pretty good at this? No, uh, well, actually, the, the guy that said, you know, you got to try this when you're done was Gib Shanley. But then once I got into it, uh, you know, I wasn't totally happy with, you know, way I was doing it. And uh, I called Joe Tate. Somebody said Joe was a great guy and he'd be glad to help you. And Joe, Kate, Joe Tate came over to my house and we sat down and listened, listened to some recordings. And, uh, you know, he told me what sounded good, what sounded bad, what I should say, what I shouldn't say. And, uh, you know, Joe is like yourself. He was, you know, the top of the game. So I remember this, Doug. I thought it was a very, very unique broadcast booth when you first joined it. Uh, <laughs> and to fill the folks in, it was really, really uh, kind of a new way of doing a typical NFL broadcast and, and especially a radio broadcast. And let me describe it. Doug was the analyst, but there were co-play-by-play guys. Jim Mueller had been Gib Shanley's partner for a long, long time. And I was working with Jim at the time at Channel 3. And so it just seemed the natural step. He would take the spot and go in and take Gibbs' position. He had waited for a long, long time. And he did, but only a percentage of it because Nev Chandler was over at Channel 5. He had left the Indians radio broadcast and gone over to Channel 5 when Gibb went out to Los Angeles. And he was also a play-by-play guy. So it was Doug, Jim Mueller, Nev Chandler. And Jim Mueller would do the first quarter. Nev Chandler would do the second. Jim would do the third. Nev would do the fourth. The first game you guys did together in the regular season, I don't know if you're going to remember this, but you know I have a crazy memory. Uh, it was against the Cardinals at the old stadium, and the game went overtime. And they took a commercial break, and Mueller and Nev come out, and they go, you know what? We didn't have a rule for this. Who does the play-by-play -play in the overtime? But it was kind of a different setup, wasn't it? Yeah, it was totally different. And, uh, you know, then the next year they decided to change it. But uh, you go back to when we were doing a, uh, those games, uh, we weren't in a, a radio booth per se like we are today. We were on the roof of the stadium right. right next to the the cameras that they videoed the, the game tapes. And the, the bathroom was <laughs> lack of a better uh, term it was an outhouse it was uh there was no flush no flushing that toilet i believe they call that the latrine i believe yeah with a little <laughs> hole cut through a wall i think or through the floor um doug it uh you you hit it in the broadcast side of things really at the right time you talk about timing kozar arrived the team was getting good they had that defense that had a real spirit to it the town was just in love with that dog pound. Uh, you had Mack and Biner. The USFL had really helped the Browns out by giving them some great players. Boy, I, I envied you guys. You were you were on top of that. You were in that wooden booth on top of that old stadium. But man, that place rocked. Those had to be fun Sundays. Yeah, they were. I think you know the excitement of you know the games, 
And you know, you know, you you, you go through swales. I think you know, as an mm-hmm. announcer, as a player. Uh, well, like I said, when I came in the first two years, we went to the playoffs and I thought, oh, this is easy, man. We're going to do this all the time. Well, that was uh, 1971 and 72. It wasn't until 80 that we went back. And then, then the strike year in 82, we went back. And then all of a sudden you hit a dull. And then, as you mentioned, Kozar and that group came in and the first year they went down to Miami and, and uh, got beat down there. But then the second year, you know, now we're playing for the AFC championship for a couple of years. Yeah. Doug, remember um, the buildup during the week for those playoff games when you're playing at home and they got ready for the Jets game and they played on a Saturday. And remember, um, we would go, we would leave town. And if you were covering the Browns, you could go with them. And I was covering the Browns. So I went with them and you were getting ready for the radio broadcast. And we would go down to Florida. We went down to Dodger Town, didn't we? And the Browns would get ready. I remember sitting with all of the guys all of the Browns players and the Browns had to watch the wild card game that Sunday afternoon to see who they were going to play. And the Jets ended up winning the game, but we were down where the Dodgers would get ready for spring training and and get ready for the regular season. And and that's where we were. It was amazing. And I think it was twofold, Doug, number one, to get out of the weather, but number two, there was so much hysteria around the city uh, with the players that I think they wanted to get them out of town a little bit. Yeah, they, they wanted to isolate them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny as you, you go into that, uh, obviously, double overtime game uh, against the Jets. And, mm. you know, one of the all-time classic games. Ever. Uh, but uh, then, you know, the next week, unfortunately, it was the Broncos coming in for the, the championship game. Uh, but with all the hysteria of the Browns, you know, doing so well, mm-hmm. what goes better than a song about the Cleveland Browns? Right. You know, you know, everybody is got their thing. So uh, my neighbor was Pat Daly, the singer, and I talked to Pat and we came up with a song and we were going to get it pressed on the, you know, 45 records and sell it at the stadium. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, the, the, the records didn't come in on time. So they didn't come in for the Jets game where we would have sold them all out. Yes. They come in for the Denver game and Daly's got 10 cartons in his basement across the street. <laughs> Really? Uh, those will be uh, collector's items, won't they? Yeah. Huh? Absolute gold. I'm surprised they weren't on that show, Solid Gold. Well, wait till you see what you get next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, those losses in those AFC championship games, I mean, first of all, when Brian Brennan catches the pass, you have to think in two weeks you're going to be broadcasting a Super Bowl. You're going to be in Pasadena, and the Browns are going to be playing the Giants. You had to think that was going to happen, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you thought, you know, now we've, we've got it. You know, this is our game. And uh, unfortunately, there was a guy with the number seven on on the other side of the field and just didn't turn out quite that well. Yeah. The following year, then we go and, and uh, the fumble happens at yeah. Mile High Stadium. Um, and you had quite a trip home, didn't you, from Denver after that? I mean, the humiliation of losing that game and a heroic, heroic comeback by the Browns and Ernest Biner in the game. And unfortunately, Biner then has the ball knocked out going in for what looks what looks is going to be the tying touchdown. Um, and then you go to the airport to say, geez, let's get home, and you can pick it up from there. Well, as the airplane started to take off down that runway at full speed, all of a sudden it hit the brakes and uh, came to a stop. There was a malfunction, and uh, uh, there was probably going to be a malfunction in the bathroom because there was a line about 10 deep in each bathroom after that thing hit the brakes real hard. 
So we ended up uh, going back to the terminal and uh, getting another airplane. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, he obviously, everybody was kind of thirsty from the game. So we cleaned out the airport bar. What a night, huh? What a night to finally yeah. get done. When you get off the plane, did you kiss the ground at, at mm -hmm. Hopkins when you finally got home? There, there was actually some guys that didn't want to get, get back on the next airplane. Yeah, how about that? Doug, um, Nev was a great, great broadcaster, and he left us all too soon. You were a great partner with him. Uh, he was sick. I often think that in his years when he was really battling cancer, uh, the job of being able to go to the game and work with you and do the Browns game kind of kept him going. It really did. He fought so hard to stay in that booth, and he was so great at it, wasn't he? Well, he was like you. He was a pro's pro, and uh, he was a perfectionist, and uh, he he worked hard at it, and uh, you know he uh, he enjoyed it. And he, growing up in Cleveland, you know he. Yeah. It was his team and everything, and he got the opportunity. And he'd been the second fiddle to give for many years. And you know, this is it was his opportunity to to go. And uh, yeah, it was it was tough. You know, as time went on, uh, to lose him because you know he was that was a good great guy. Yeah, just a great guy, absolutely. And he left us far too early, no doubt about it. Um, and and I know that was a great team. You were a great partner to him. Um, and, and then we moved on and, and Casey Coleman went in and came in and took over when, uh, when Nev was to the point where he could not do the games anymore. And then he passed. And I always thought Doug Casey had a, he had big shoes to fill. Not only that he had to take the place of Gib Shanley and Nev Chandler, and these were great, great voices of the Browns, but well, he also had to, he also had to kind of, you know, walk in the shadow of his dad, Ken Coleman who was a great voice of the Cleveland Browns. I mean, Casey grew up around the Browns because of his dad. Yeah, and Casey had a different style, you know, totally uh, different than Nev. You know, Casey was more laid back and, you know, he, uh, he would make a call and tackle it by number 35 and he'd go, check that, it's number 28. And I kept going, hey, Casey, we're on the radio. You don't have to say check that. People don't know you made a mistake. But Casey was, uh, yeah, he was more laid back and just kind of took it in his big thing we used to like to say well we're in the shadows of our goalpost and uh you know yeah you know unfortunately we, we lost Casey too yeah we did and I, I can, I'll never forget the day Doug um and and Casey and I had kind of a uh, a connection because he had spent a lot of his youth growing up in the Boston area and that was where I was from because Casey's dad was the voice of the Red Sox on the radio and I can remember that we had come off a road trip and I think we were on the bye week uh, the three of us, and he called me up in the middle of an afternoon. I'm sure he called you at that point, too. And I thought he was calling me to talk about the Red Sox were playing that afternoon in a playoff game. And I thought he was going to say, hey, hey, buddy, uh, what do you think is going to happen in the game today? And he calls me up and he says, hey, I've got pancreatic cancer. And again, just like Nev, uh, what a fight by Casey. He was our sideline guy, Doug. And, yep. and uh, you know, you instituted a tradition when he was away from us uh, undergoing treatment that at like 12 30 15 minutes before we would go on the air on a one o'clock typical broadcast you'd pick up that phone and we'd call him and get on and say how you doing yeah and Casey actually ended up you know uh, buying the house next door to me and uh, you know it was it, you know it was it's tough you know you lose somebody that you're working with and then you're you're losing a neighbor too uh, you know 
but you you know you see these guys out in the football field and you think how tough they are then you see some of the guys you broadcast with and you realize that the guys on the football field aren't the only tough guys yeah doug when the browns moved how did that hit you because uh you were a browns player uh you stayed in cleveland you're a browns legend you're a browns broadcaster so your work situation is going to change a great deal how did it hit you when they left oh i mean it was it was like a sucker punch i mean uh i guess you know you heard rumbles that you know they might be leaving and stuff like that and you know you just really didn't believe it till the plane dealer had it on the, the headlines and uh there's some other things i guess that i should have known it was going to happen but uh you know you just didn't want to believe it and it, I guess the toughest part about that was, you know, watching the people in the stadium, yeah. uh, especially when they walked out after that last game, you know, yeah. you know, every grown adult had tears in their eyes and, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, most of them had, you know, uh, stadium seats underneath their arms too, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, you know, to see this, you know, city be deprived of something they love so much and, you know, whether or not art was right or wrong, uh, you know, it just was the wrong thing to do. Which leads me to Art Modell, uh, because you had a lot of years to have your relationship grow and wind and go down the road. And there were, I know there were bumpy parts to the road when you played for him. I mean, you tell the story about you went out to breakfast to negotiate your contract with him and he made you pick up the tab at Perkins or something <laughs> like that. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, he always wanted to see you post-move when the Browns came back and we would go over to Baltimore. So if you could put a bow on on your relationship with him through the years and, and what it was like and, and maybe the last time you saw him, I can remember you snuck over and saw him over in Baltimore. Yeah, well, yeah, he, you know, uh, like I said, what he did was wrong and it's unfortunate, but, you know, it was, it was a case when free agency came in he was a millionaire in a billionaire's game and uh, he just couldn't afford to do the signing bonuses and things like that. You know, and he, I think he truly loved Cleveland and he, you know, would have loved to have stayed here had he gotten the stadium. But, uh, you know, I remember I called Ozzy one time and, you know, Art was in the room and uh, I'm talking to Ozzy and he says, Art, do you want to talk to uh, Deacon? And Art goes, he don't want to talk to me. So that, that was it. So then, you know, when uh, we'd go over to Baltimore to play, I would go down to, uh, I went down to see him in his loge and to say hello. And, you know, and uh, David, his son was there and Art was in the bathroom. This was at halftime. So he only had, you know, a short window of time. Right. And I kept waiting for Art to come out. I kept waiting for him to come out. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't. So I finally knocked on the door and I said, hey, Art, it's Deacon. You don't owe me any money. You could have came out. And I left. <laughs> and that was the last thing I ever said to Art Modell. And, and then, you know, when, when he passed away, the uh, Mr. Lerner uh, flew some of the Browns out to Baltimore for his funeral. The Browns are coming back in 1999. And everybody and their uncle wants to go be a part of the broadcast team. Doug, how badly did you want it? And I was amazed that you even had to go through the whole audition thing. After all, you had the job before they moved. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, obviously it was a job I enjoyed. And, you know, the thing that goes with the job, you usually get some kind of TV gig, you know, uh, to get something going, too. Uh, it was, you know, it was it was different. Uh, you know, the thing that they did was they had a couple uh, 
luncheons, one with uh, over in Pittsburgh with the Steelers and one in Cleveland to uh, kind of uh, renew the rivalry. And uh, we went over to uh, Pittsburgh and they did one. And I remember I was sitting at the table and all of a sudden Jack Lambert was there and Jack comes over to say hello. And these two young players sitting next to me go, that was Jack Lambert. I said, yeah. And he didn't come over to say hello to anybody, <laughs> but that was, you know, that was Jack. I had a, you know, uh, we competed against one another, but you know, off the field, uh, Jack was a good guy, but, uh, you know, they, they gave us, you know, an audition. They had, you know, I don't know. I think who did you audition with, uh, Brian Brennan? Yeah. Let me, uh, let me set it up for everybody because okay. it really, it, it, it <laughs> will tap into a lot of my investigative reporting skills that I've honed through the years. Uh, well, first of all, let me just say to everybody, they could write a book about naming the radio broadcast team for the Browns when they came back in 1999. And it would have been a great thriller. I really think it would have yeah. hit the, would have hit the top spot because everybody wanted the job. Everybody, whether you were a former player or you were a sportscaster, everybody wanted it. So when they finally whittled it down in 1999, Doug mentions there is an audition and it's done on a Sunday afternoon down at the studios of Magic 105 because Clear Channel was the carrying broadcast partner. They were the flagship. They had won the rights uh, for the Browns radio broadcast. So at Magic 105.7, which was downtown in the Hat Factory District, in Cleveland on a beautiful spring Sunday afternoon, the remaining people that were competing for the job were asked to come in and they were gonna give you one quarter of whatever you did as an analyst or as a play-by-play -play guy. And they would team you up and make, make these semi-broadcast teams. And the game was the New York Giants against the Philadelphia Eagles. And you called it off a television screen. And it was the Fox television broadcast of that game from the from the preceding season. Um, and being an Irish Catholic uh, altar boy that studied Latin when the mass was in Latin, I played by the rules. <laughs> Others did not, I understand. Well, One of them is right now the man I am talking to. Admit now, I think this will really, it will help you when you're in front of our, when, when you're in front of our eternal maker, that you clear this sin off of your soul. There's rules and there's, there's getting an edge. And in, in, in sports, <laughs> right. if you can get an There's edge, getting it's the always, answers to the test before yeah, the test. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you'd like to see what the test is all about. And uh, I had a, a roommate, Dale Lindsay, who played linebacker here, who was coaching in the NFL. And they told us what game it was going to be. And I said, hey, Dale, can you give me uh, this game? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll send it out tomorrow. So I'd watch the game about three times before <laughs> I got to the broadcast. So, and I said, oh boy, it looks like it'd be a good time for a screen pass. Oh boy, it was a screen pass. <laughs> hey, this guy's smart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, hey, if you can find an edge, we'll, we'll just say I did it the Bill Belichick way. That's why I've always said that's why you got along so well with Belichick. And you did. I mean, you know, you got along with Belichick. Um, here's the amazing thing, everybody. Um, Doug and I never worked together during the audition process. Uh, Doug worked with play-by-play -play guys and I worked with different analysts. Yeah, I worked with Hanford. I worked with Brian Brennan. I worked with Bob Golick, but never you. Now, I want to further that about these luncheons. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I would walk the floors at night wondering if I was going to get the job because it was taking so long. 
And finally, there was the second of these Pittsburgh Cleveland luncheons. And the reason they were doing it, folks, was because the Browns were going to play their first game against the Steelers when they came back in the regular season at, uh, at, you know, at, in Cleveland. And so it was at the Renaissance downtown. I don't know. It might've been still Stouffer's then Doug, but it was the Renaissance and it was packed. And I was the MC and I, on one side, I had Al Lerner and on the other side, I had Dan Rooney and you got up and delivered this speech. And I have to tell you, those two guys, both of them were buckled over in laughter Okay, because you really hit it out of the park. I mean, you pulled out one of your great Kiwanis speeches yeah. and, really, <laughs> and really nailed it. And I said, Doug Deacon's going to get the job. Do you remember yeah. that day? Oh, I remember that day. And, uh, you know, we, we worked on, you know, the presentation. And uh, it was the day after that day, I got a phone call telling me, I, you know, hey, you're going to do the game. So, uh, yeah. and, you know, it, what had happened is when we were over in, Pittsburgh to do their luncheon, they just had some dry conversation. And I think Robert Jackson said to uh, somebody, he said, why don't you get Deacon to go up there and talk? Cause he can bust chops with the best of them. And so, uh, you know, I, they, they asked me to go up and I said, okay, we'll go up there. And we, we were prepared for it. Yeah, man, you were ready to go. Gosh. I mean, it was like watching a Vegas nightclub routine. I mean, you were that ready to go. If only you had worn a tux. I mean, I tell yeah. you something, you would have been really ready. All right. So we, we go to the hall of fame game, Doug, that's our first game that we're going to do together. And the Browns are going to open up the preseason. They're going to play five preseason games. And they're going to open up at the Hall of Fame game on the weekend that Ozzie Newsom is inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And they're going to play the Dallas Cowboys. And it was exciting. Now, I know a lot of people look at the Hall of Fame game now and go, oh, gosh, when's that thing going to be over? But around these parts and the fact that the Browns were back for the first time in three and a half years, right? Uh, it was like it was like being in the Super Bowl, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was, obviously there was a lot of energy, you know, from the fans that have been frustrated and, you know, finally got their team back. And, uh, you know, you didn't know what you were going to get. You know, you're, you're putting a product out there. Uh, obviously, the NFL wasn't as generous in the supplemental draft as they were with uh, Carolina right. and Jacksonville. So, you know, the Browns were a little bit behind the eight ball. And the thing, the thing I always remember about that game, we stayed at that uh, Holiday Inn there. And we had hired a new head of security, uh, Lou Merletti, who was the former director of the Secret Service. Right. And when I walked into the hotel and I saw 10, you know, policemen, you know, uh, stationed around, I said, boy, this is going to be a little bit uh, different. But, yeah. you know, that's the way, you know, Lou and, you know, Lou was hired by Mr. Lerner because, you know, he uh, appreciated those people that had worked for the government and probably hadn't been compensated to the level he thought they should have. So Doug and I are doing the game and the Browns win. They win in overtime. Um, and the legend of Phil Dawson starts because he wins the game for them with a kick. And I remember turning to you after, you know, the game was over and I think we're getting set to go to the post game. And I said, gosh, this is going to be easy. We're not going to skip a beat. We're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to be in the playoffs. How quickly that was dashed. Yeah, that was dashed quite quickly. Especially, I think we opened the regular season. Uh, we oh, was, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. And Cowher uh, was the coach. Doug, how yeah. about this story about that game, though? Um, they go to Bill Cower before the game, and they say, hey, do you mind if we don't introduce the Steelers, your team, because it's the Browns night, you know, and let's bring them out. They're back. I mean, the place is going to go crazy. He went, hey, I understand that. No doubt about it. 
And he went into his locker room and told his team, they're disrespecting you. <laughs> and I think they beat us 43 nothing, didn't they? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a blowout. I mean, poor Tim Couch didn't have a, a chance. And, you know, in, in knowing Bill and having had Bill as a roommate uh, when he was with the Browns as a player, you know, you kind of, hey, Bill, whatever we used to do, play racquetball, play basketball, it was competitive. I mean, yeah. we, we'd go to these charity games and we'd be on the same team and he'd be blocking my shot so he could score more <laughs> points than I could. Uh, you know, the reason I got him as a roommate was uh, I'd had a knee operation right before training camp. And I, you know, so we were out at Lakeland in the dumpy little hotel out there. Yeah. So I went into the business guy and I said, hey, I need a new roommate. Well, who do you want? I said, well, I'm a, I want Cower. And Bill and I, we used to run together, you know, uh, in the afternoons after our racquetball games. He says, Cower, why do you want Cower? I said, well, I just had a knee operation. There's no remote control. Who's going to change the TV for me? <laughs> so he gave me Cower and then they trade him. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, boy, those were tough years. I mean, uh, we oh. were very naive and and you hit on it. It really started in the supplemental draft and there was just no way that the NFL owners were going to allow the Browns to be like Jacksonville and Carolina because remember, they just robbed everybody's roster and became really good really fast and the owners were going to not allow that to happen again. And it, it happened to really fall on the Browns. I mean, this was an expansion team, Doug, to the yeah. highest definition, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, they. Uh, I think the, the other two teams, Jacksonville and Carolina, got double picks in the first few rounds. Right. Uh, they just said, no, this is what you're going to get. And then, um, uh, like you mentioned, the, the, the other guys that we got, it, it, I think there was less players available than there had been with Jacksonville and Carolina. All right, tell me this, Doug, uh, as we go along, um, you know, people often say, uh, how did you guys get through all of those tough seasons? After all, there was the year they only won one game. Uh, it was the year they didn't win any games. There were a lot of years where they won four games, okay? I always said, we always went to the stadium and we never knew what was going to happen. You never knew what was going to happen. Um, so you went in with that. You went in with a blank canvas every Sunday. But the other thing was, I just always felt we were two guys that were sitting together. We had seats next to each other and we were just watching the game. And, uh, and you know, whether it turned out to be a win or in a lot of cases, it turned out to be a loss. You walked away afterwards and you just said, Hey, listen, you know what? On to the next one. It was just a lot of fun. And I know it would have been great to be doing big games and playoff games, but it wasn't realistic. And, um, and yet, we were there, we were doing our jobs, and I think we had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, we did. And, you know, the thing is, you sit there and uh, you, you watch these games, and, and as a player, you know what they're going through, you know. And when you get slacked on and it happened to me at Illinois. You know, I went to Illinois, and they went on probation for four years, uh, not because of me, but because of what had happened before. So you couldn't play as a freshman. We go, you know, 1-9, and 0-10, oh and, and 3-7. and seven. And that, that just frustrates the heck out of you. And then when you play, you know, all of a sudden I come to Cleveland, we go to the playoffs the first couple of years, and then things kind of go bad till 1980. And then they start to, you know, another, uh, the strike year, 82, uh, we got back to playoffs when they added the things. Uh, and, you know, when you put 
that many guys together, you don't know what you're going to get. You know, as Forrest Gump said, it's like a box of chocolates. But I think, you know, you just always hope, you know, and, and I always say I've never played in a game I didn't think I was going to win. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't think that way, you're not going to win. Yeah. Doug, uh, great moments, um, you know, that we had together. Uh, William Green busts that big run. Um, you yell out, run, William, run. It makes you a box <laughs> <No>. office uh, hit. <laughs> no. One thing no. I learned One thing I learned is, you know, just keep your mouth shut and let the pros handle the job. <laughs> they make the playoffs that day, Doug, and uh, it was really great. Uh, it was the first time I felt, Doug, that that new stadium felt like the old stadium. Yeah. How about yeah. you? I really felt like that. This yeah. is what I remember when I first came to Cleveland and I was covering a big Brown Steelers game or something. Yeah. It, I mean, it was old school Browns, you know, it was the cardiac kids there. Uh, you know, my first couple of years went to the playoffs. You know, it, it was, it was nice to see the fans rewarded because, you know, they, they have gone through some pretty bad football for, you know, quite a few years. And finally, you know, it looked like we'd popped our head out, you know, and we were ready to, you know, be a competitor on a, on a yearly basis. Yeah. And then the next week, real heartbreak. I mean, we had the thing under control over in Pittsburgh and it got away from the Browns and uh, boy, that was tough. Wasn't it? Because they played so well. Tim Couch had broken his leg the week before yeah. in the final game against Atlanta, Kelly Holcomb came in and played incredible football that day in Pittsburgh and the week before to help them get past the Falcons and that was heartbreak. That was a tough bus ride home. Yeah, it, it was. And, you know, you, you mentioned Tim Couch. Now, there's a guy that uh, deserved a better fate than, you know, what he got here because, you know, he, he just never had a chance because the cast was never there. You know, right. uh, they had uh, the offensive line was kind of makeshift. Uh, you know, the receivers, uh, like I said, you know, when you didn't get all those multiple picks in the early rounds, they weren't able to load up like some other teams had. And I, I have a lot of respect for Tim Couch, you know, and the beating he took. And, you know, uh, in fact, you know, three or four years ago when they were looking for a new TV guy, I had suggested to him because, you know, this guy deserved his due for, you know, what he what he did here because he took a beating. Doug, then we come to 2020 and, and here we are and the Browns are terrific. They're exciting and they have this coach that is in Kevin Stefanski that is just, you know, drawing up these incredible game plans and, and we're in a stadium and they're only allowing 12,000 people in when we're doing the game at home. And when they're on the road where they have some amazing victories over Tennessee and the playoff win over Pittsburgh and the win in Dallas and the, the last second win down in Cincinnati. And we're doing the game, calling it off a television screen at first energy stadium. That was really something, wasn't it? What a year. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it, the environment, you know, obviously is pretty sterile compared to being there. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was the thing about it, it was so great for the city because, yeah. first off, we beat Pittsburgh to get in. Right. <laughs> then we beat Pittsburgh to get to the second round. <laughs> Anytime you beat back, Pittsburgh back to back, it's a good year. Yeah, it really is. You know, oftentimes you would tell me um, through the years that you worried that players, when they would come here in this new age of the Browns, um, you know, needed to understand where they were playing, Cleveland, who they were playing for, an incredible, passionate fan base. And they needed to understand what the rivalries meant 
And the one that stands out is the one with the Steelers. And I think you're right about that. I always thought you were right about that. And I know you would sit with people in the locker room when we could go in the locker room. And they would ask you sometimes, what is the Steeler Pittsburgh, Steeler Brown thing all about? You know what? You were right. Uh, these young players needed to learn how much it meant to this fan base to beat and, those guys. And one of the guys that, you know, I used to talk to on a regular basis was Phil Dawson. Uh, Phil was a football player that kicked. And uh, I have the utmost respect for Phil. And uh, he won one over there with a kick. And, you know, I caught him That's after right. the game. And I, I said, I got to tell you, Phil, you don't know what you just did. He said, what do you mean? I said, I, I came over here 14 times as a player. And I went home 0-14. I said, you don't know what you just did. Yeah. That was the last time that the Browns would play at Three River Stadium. Yeah. That was the last game that the Browns would play at Three yeah. River Stadium. You know, the other neat thing about our 23 years together is that our families became, you know, so connected. You know, Megan was in the booth when she was yeah. really short, and now she might be just an inch taller, but she's still pretty short. But, I mean, <laughs> she was there for a lot of years. And to her, your Uncle Doug and God, Spencer and Allie, I mean, yeah. uh, our families became, I mean, think about it, Doug. In 23 years, from July to January, you and I were together more than we were probably with our families. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it, it was tough. Uh, you know, the, the, the good thing is, you know, you build friendships, whether you're playing or not. And, you know, you still stay in touch with, you know, a lot of, you know, people that uh, you played with. You yeah. mentioned, you know, Hall. I mean, the greatest guy in the world. Uh, I mean, uh, there's guys that, you know, you, you, you really would like to see again. But unfortunately, you don't always get that, you know, opportunity. And, you know, the Browns have their alumni golf outing. And, you know, sometimes some of the, you know, the, the guys come in. But, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting there and you see, you know, the obit page. And, you know, Bo Scott dies. Great mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jack Gregory passes away. Great right. guy. You know, uh, Tom DeLeon, one of the best guys in the world. And, you know, it's it's tough. And you feel for their families because you, you get attached to their families. And yeah. you know, my, my thing used to be, you know, the guys that used to have kids, uh, I'd always, you know, try to buy them, you know, Christmas presents, but then I'd take the white athletic tape and tape them up. So it'd take them an hour to unwrap it. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, and you, you have a lot of friendships like that, that uh, you just can't replace just, two, no. just good, good people. And, you know, uh, I, I always thought, you know, you, you have fun with the, your friends, the guys that you respect. And as a, as a player, you know, uh, sometimes I guess I, I looked at my friends as how they played. You know, those guys that played hard, they played tough. They were always my friends. You know, the guys that were, you know, just trying to uh, steal a check, I had nothing to do with. Yeah. Um, well, you had a lot to do with uh, the community at Cleveland, though. Um, you really you did a lot of charity work. Special Olympics was was very near and dear and important in your life and in your heart. Uh, you really uh, took an active, an active role in those charities. Well, you know, and the, the whole time that I played, I was single. So I had, you know, a lot of free time. And my younger brother, uh, they started the Special Olympics back in Illinois. And uh, my younger brother was a Special Olympics athlete. So I went around the county and talked to all the high schools or the schools that, you know, had special ed classes and, uh, you know, tried to get the kids, you know, energized to go participate. And so they had the first Special Olympics back 
there and I took my, my brother over and they had, he was competing in some events. And uh, after, you know, it was, was done, we, he got in the car and he had a jacket on and it was kind of a hot day. And I says, yeah, you feeling okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, uh, what do you want to do? Let's go to the root beer stand when we get home. And we were at a town maybe uh, 20 miles away. And so I get home and our friends own this root beer stand. And my younger brother, you know, he goes into the root beer stand and he unzips his jacket. He's got these four ribbons. Yeah. And, you know, he said, what do you think of this, Mr. Big Shot? <laughs> I always say that's the greatest moment I've ever had in sports. It's yeah. seeing him with four uh, ribbons because, you know, he passed away in 82. So. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, as we, uh, as we get ready to kind of close the curtain yeah. on this, what are you going to do? What are you going to do on Sunday afternoons? I'll, I'll try and figure out in the next coming months what the heck I'm going to do without you, but what are you going to do? <laughs> That's going to be interesting. You know, unfortunately, the the back has uh, been a little bad and uh, we haven't played golf for a year. And that's yeah. kind of what you were looking forward to doing when you re retired. Uh, you know, I got some other injuries and illnesses that I got to get taken care of so I can see if I can get the back taken care of, but it's, it's just, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, I guess the grandkids are going to get a lot more attention. Uh, yeah. They, uh, They'll see more of Poppy Doug than they probably want to. Yeah. You know, one of the great pictures that you had, I remember uh, when your first uh, grandchild was born, Spencer had a little boy and he was out there. He had number 73 on at training camp. The picture is of you, your grandson, and the other 73, Joe Thomas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's, and I think, you know, Joe's got the daughters and, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, I didn't get married till uh, after I retired and, and started a family later on in life. Uh, you know, some days, you know, I sit there and I said, you, just, you know, I wish it had been nice to have them when I played so they could have seen me play. But on the other hand, uh, I'd rather they just know me as their dad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got to tell you, um, you're a legend. You were a great <laughs> teammate. I know you're a great teammate. Because your teammates flock back to love you. You were an incredible partner, uh, but a better friend. Well, uh, and I tell you what, uh, you know, you, you work with people and, you know, you, you, you evaluate, you know, what they do to get the job done. You know, and I had teammates that, you know, would work out hard in the offseason. I had some that didn't. But uh, when it comes to this line of business, there ain't nobody better than you. Deke, I don't know what I'm going to do because you know I'm not a good flyer. And uh, you. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I saw, let me tell you, I saw Jesus and my mother when we were trying to land from Cincinnati a few years ago. And my mom has passed away. Uh, and I thought I was going to be joining them. And thank heavens you were beside me. I have to tell you, I am white knuckler all the way. And you got me through a lot of tough flights. Well, yeah, the thing is, you know, I, you know, playing for the 14 years and playing every game, you, you learn to play hurt, you know, be it a torn cartilage in this knee, a broken hand, broken thumb, whatever. But I never missed a game. But I tripped on coming out, uh, going out of the radio booth to go to the yeah. bathroom, the, the old crew that used to have us before 
Jason and the rest of the guys, they didn't tape down the uh, cord to the heater. And I tripped over it. I tore my rotator cuff wow. and my bicep. And I said, you know what? I couldn't have played the next week. I guess broadcasting is a little tougher than playing. <laughs> I always said that. I mean, yeah. really, that stuff that we describe is pretty easy. Hey, Doug, I love you. And okay. um, you congratulations. You did it. You did. Cheryl you and Megan. Just an amazing, you're an amazing partner. And we had so much fun that, uh, you know, it's, it's something I'll never forget. And I hope you don't either. No, I, I don't. And I always, you know, respect your professionalism and your preparation and, you know, how, how much you really care about that broadcast sounding good for the fans uh, below that are listening. And, you know, to get back to Nev, and I, I think I've told you the story. When Nev passed away, I got this letter from somebody. They said that they'd lost their eyesight. They couldn't watch the Browns games. And, you know, all of a sudden they were listening to the broadcast. And through the words of, you know, Nev, they, they could see the game again. And I said, well, if that guy was enjoying it then, he's enjoying it more now because you, your description, I mean, it, they're the best in the business. Thanks, Doug. Obviously a standout at his position in the National Football League when he came in as a tight end, <laughs> a decorated broadcaster, uh, and Gribbs, maybe the most important takeaway from, from the interview with Jim and Doug, uh, a, a humanitarian and a great person in the community who has seen and done it all and, and has tried to help wherever possible. Uh, Gribbs, what stood out to you from the last 50-plus minutes between Jim and Doug? Well, I, I love the story about how Doug had to retry out for the job uh, back in 1999. And, you know, Doug, you know, just like he did on the field with his uh, well-documented uh, holding that, that really got under the skin of the other defensive linemen, he took every edge he could with uh, getting the job back. And, and that included uh, using his network of resources to, to get some game film and look like a uh, he was, he was Tony Romo before Tony Romo with uh, predicting the plays and, and getting all that knocked out. So I, I loved hearing about that. And obviously uh, a touching moment there when he's talking about uh, his brother and, and kind of the, why he's so involved with Special Olympics. I mean, raising over $250,000, uh, just an incredible uh, journey he's, he's been with the Browns and one that I don't think is over yet. I think, uh, like I said, he's going to be around here uh, and, and still representing the Browns because that, that's, that's what he loves to do. Uh, but just a, a remarkable guy and, and a remarkable achievement that he, he was able to do. It will be a special day on Sunday at First Energy Stadium. The Browns and the Bengals to wrap up the 2021-2022 season. More importantly, Doug Deacon Day and our chance to honor him. The fan base will get a chance to honor him. Some surprises coming along the way as well. For more on Doug Deacon Week, including interviews with friends and former teammates, videos, and more, log on to clevelandbrowns.com or visit any of the Browns social media platforms all this week. As for the best podcast available, we are coming back. That's right. The offseason uh, officially will get underway, and we will back, be back with you later on in the month of January. For Andrew Gribble, I'm Jason Gibbs. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to the best podcast available.